Once again, let's take a moment to speak the Lord's favor as we open His Word and minister to us this morning. Heavenly Father, by the blessing of Your Spirit, may the focus upon Jesus Christ be of edification to us. Uh, may it remove where removal is needed. May repentance occur where repentance is needed. Uh, may there be a joy and a reverence for you and a, a blessing from your spirit so that we might receive your word in such a way that you might be exalted both in the worship that we give to you weekly and the service we give you every day. May you accept our prayers for the sake of Jesus. Amen. We're going to be picking up a portion of God's word from Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14 through 16, and also with that portion of God's word, consider Lord's Day 14 out of the Isles of Catechism as we continue our series on that confessional standard that we follow. We're in the midst of the Apostles' Creed there, making our confession of the Triune God, particularly of God the Son, and here specifically about. The Incarnation, about how Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So before we take a look on page 21, in the back of the Luke Gizal, or Lord's Day 14, we read the Word of God, first of all, from Hebrews 4, verse 14. Starting with that verse, we read the end of the chapter. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We uh, thank the Lord for that portion of his word. Take a moment to consider Lord's Day 14, questions 35 and 36. Now, the first question gets asked, what does it mean that, the, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? That the eternal Son of God, who is remained through the eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit and the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a truly human nature, so that he might become David's true descendant in all things like us, his brothers, except for sin. Question 36, how does the Holy Conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, he removed from God's sight my sin, mine, since I was conceived. Indeed, may God's word be a blessing to us this morning, uh, and that the Lord might shower uh, with us with his favor that way. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I suppose that one of the reasons that we may watch uh, certain programs or spectacles it's because they show us something that, that we haven't seen before. And we may want to be 
thrilled or stimulated by the newness of what we're watching. Now, whenever a circus would have come into town, part of the attraction to go with was the new act in the center ring. Would attract people to YouTube or Instagram and other computer-based programming because they are platforms to show what people may never have seen before. But now when we confess Christians that Jesus Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, we're confessing something that had never happened before and never has since and never will. A unique event with a unique benefit, which only Jesus Christ as God incarnate could and can provide. We confess a unique benefit by way of a unique event where the Word becomes flesh and God dwells with us as Emmanuel in Jesus Christ. And so this morning we want to take a look at this matter a little bit, a little bit more focus. Because while we may find something stimulating uh, about those other things that we see that we have not seen before, there is nothing that is meant to take the place or that can replace the benefit that Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, brings to a certain person's life. And we should be able to say to ourselves, nothing more stimulating, nothing more thrilling than that event that has never happened since and that has never happened before. So we take a look, first of all, at the unique event of the Incarnation. And we can summarize the unique event as we just did, that as John chapter 1 would tell us, the Word became flesh. Or that God the Son becomes a man. And it may seem simple to say, but it's certainly like no other event because of the unique person that is the result of the unique event. He who is eternal takes on temporality without giving up his eternal and divine nature by taking on human nature. And while all other births occur by way of two humans coming together in one form or another, this conception is accomplished by the working of the Holy Spirit. Remarkably tonight, when we're talking about what's going on with uh, Abraham and Hagar in Genesis. 16, uh, we are going to be reminded again in, in similar tones to what we're hearing about today, that these things happen not by the will of man, but by the will of God. It speaks to us of one who is like us, but then also of someone who is truly special, set apart from us, set apart from sinners. When we make this confession of incarnation, we confess a gracious event. Because if God does not send the word in his flesh, the Holy Spirit does not work this special work of conception, and you see this all happening in a triune way, if God doesn't initiate this, that one means, that one solution 
to our sinful predicament is not realized. <clears throat> we must conclude that God in his grace made real what was not possible with us through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Confessing the incarnation speaks then also of a wondrous event. It's a gracious event. It's a wonderful event. It speaks to amazing greatness. <clears throat> Beyond our ability to fully understand and comprehend. I mean, how does such conception take place? How does someone who has never had relations with a man bear a child and such a child as this? How does the eternal take on the temporal? How does the divine lawgiver become the, the law keeper? How does he who created all things take on the creature? How does the divine and the human unite in one person and yet maintain their unique nature so that this one is not half human and half divine or some blend between the two? Now we can say certain things that are true in accordance with the word of truth about this incarnation. And we do that uh, confessionally. Uh, certainly in the Heidelberg Catechism, we do that in the uh, Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, especially. Uh, we do that in our, really, in general, in our confession sense. But what we must conclude, once again, is that what is impossible with us is possible with God. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's truly wonderful. And it's humbling for us then, both as we ponder then the graciousness of the Incarnation and the wonder of the Incarnation, uh, moving us then in turn in faith to the praise of God. The praise, of course, as our passage would make clear, could only happen anyway by means of this kind of high priest. God incarnate. Without him, we cannot draw near to God in worship and praise him. And without him, we cannot give praise in the presence of God, which is such a privilege. Through faith, we take delight in the truth that Christ is both the divine and the human. On the one hand, we can say he remains the same yesterday, today, and forever, always the faithful God always the faithful and great high priest of his people, with no beginning or ending of days, and in that way, no different, so different than we are. And yet at the same time, we can say that he knows what we've gone through. He's like his brothers in all things, so that he can sympathize with us in our weakness. That's why and all of that is being talked about in the earlier chapters of Hebrews, which leads us to the therefore where we are here in this chapter. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to face the effects of sin. He's like us in every way. And we take great comfort in that. But we're called to we're also called, and we take great comfort in that while he shares in our humanity, he doesn't share in our sin. He becomes that sin for us 
but he doesn't share it. We need such an incarnate one as well, because if, if all we have is priests or anybody comes alongside of us and says, well, I know not only what it is like to go through what you go through, but also that I've sinned like you did, then the comfort that we might think we have from such a person eludes us. Now, we need a priest who has not sinned like he has. And that's where the comfort's found. A true man, to be sure, but a truly perfect man, even more so. We need to know and confess that he's like us, because he needs to be like us in order for us to truly know the grace and mercy of which Hebrews speaks of here, but only by way of also becoming what we are not. Perfect to the full extent of the law. Perfectly righteous. In the incarnation, then, we see the one who becomes all that we need and which we can confess in a nutshell of Christ who is Savior and King, a royal priest. The angel said to Mary that the sure promises to David would be fulfilled in this one who was conceived in her by the way of the Holy Spirit. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, and, and, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Who else has a kingdom like that? What other, what other kingdom can match such a kingdom, an everlasting domain, a domain that encompasses not only a particular region, but the entirety of the cosmos, the entire universe, whose kingdom can match the splendor, uh, whose kingdom can match the splendor of this kingdom in duration and expanse and purity. And the incarnation of Christ ushers in that kind of kingdom. That event of incarnation brings to the world a person whose domain is only outmatched by the incarnate person who reigns over it. And many there are who have sought to discount the uniqueness of this event, and therefore the uniqueness of this person. Therefore, the uniqueness of this kingdom and the uniqueness of his ability. And they make him out to be perverse and common. And the fantasy of primitive and self deceived values. And so they claim there's nothing special about the birth of Jesus, and therefore, nothing special about Christ himself. But to be content with such an attitude means we are content to delight then in the incarnation of the devil. Because you see, when you read the pages of scripture, everybody on earth either delights in the incarnation of God or they delight in the incarnation of the deceiver, of the devil. We're either followers 
of the incarnate devil, or we are followers of the incarnate God. And if we're not followers of God incarnate, we are but followers of the devil incarnate as the serpent who tempted our first parents. And we are then content with the curse, content to be conformed to the image of deceit and death and bondage and perversion, with no blessing to be found, without God and without hope in the world. And some are content with that. Remaining in Adam as followers of the devil incarnate, all uh, to, to act in those manners, uh, we get the impression sometimes from people that those are the ones that stand out, and, and they want to stand out, and they want to act like there's something special. But there's nothing special in remaining in Adam and being followers, followers of the devil. There's nothing special about being anti-Christian. There isn't anything wondrous about it. You don't have to answer that. Because that kind of resolve and that kind of contentment, if you want to call it that, leads us doomed to emptiness and vanity. There's nothing special to that either. The incarnation of God, though, is a special event. It provides what only God can provide. That's what makes it special. It's a special person of righteousness and redemption that the devil is not and his followers could never be. The devil becomes a serpent because he wants mankind to become subhuman. God becomes a man because he wants man to be restored to his image, to God's image, to the image of the Son of God, to be the humans that he intended them to be all along. And that's something special. The incarnation of God was an event like no other. God became man, and in the process, a person like no other. The benefit, then, is to provide what we could never provide on our own. He is holy in conception and birth. We're conceived and born in sin. He's never known sin. Left to ourselves, we know we never know anything but sin. So we profess this perfect person, then, as the perfect priest, the great high priest. In being that great high priest, Truly God, truly a perfect man, we have a perfect fit for our needs. If we're estranged from God as human beings, what greater mediator could we have than he who is both true God and true man and truly righteous to carry us out to his Father's glory and for our benefit? Now, we can speak about many horrible things in life. Maybe you've experienced, or you can look back in your own life, and you can just ponder of things that you hardly even want to talk about. And they're terrifying, and they, they can leave scars. 
But there is nothing more horrifying than to be estranged from God. I mean, it may be terrifying to be enemies of certain people in this world who dread them. But there is nothing more terrifying than to be enemies of God. Nothing. Because if God is for us, then who can be against us? Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God and in Christ Jesus. But if God is against us, if God is against us, then who can be for us? That, that's a horrifying thought. But that fear changes for everyone and for all those who know Christ as God incarnate, the great high priest of God, who faith. I confess that Christ, by his innocence and perfect holiness, removed from God's sight my sin, mine since I was conceived. I've been changed. I've been recreated in Christ, no longer conformed to the image of the serpent of sin and death, but now conformed to the image of God's Son in righteousness and truth. And once I had no place in God's presence. But now, praise God, I can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that I can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, the throne of grace is a New Testament way of speaking of the mercy seat of God. Located in the Holy of Holies, the place of God's presiding and presence. Exodus 25 speaks uh, to that throne of grace, calling it the mercy seat. And in verses 21 and 22, it, it says this there, And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. He'll meet with you there and give you his word. I mean, who can go there in the Old Testament except for the high priest once a year to offer blood atonement for the people? But now a greater one has come, greater than Levi, greater than the Levitical, than the Levitical priesthood, the greater priest, the great high priest, and because he's come as God incarnate, we may now enter that most holy place. We may. We may come before that throne of grace, not in the man-made one on earth, but in heaven. In heaven above which is where the true sanctuary is found and where Christ sits at God's right hand. Uh, in this very same book of which we've been reading in Hebrews, we look in verses uh, 11 and 12 of chapter 9, and it speaks to this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, he entered once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus 
securing an eternal redemption. And then in verses uh, 22 to 24, we read this. Indeed, under the law, everything is purified with blood. And while without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We can seek mercy then, as the passage says in Hebrews 4, when we succumb to temptation. And we can seek grace to overcome it when we need it. And that privilege to come into God's presence that once belonged only to a select few has now been opened to us by way of Jesus Christ, our great mediator, truly God, truly man. And when do we do that? When do we draw near to that throne of grace with such privilege? When we pray, we have access to God, seek pardon and strength, but, but every time when we come to worship, every time, we're given the privilege of offering sacrifices of thanksgiving to God the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. We're given the privilege of worshiping in His presence. And that's why Hebrews 10 would say to us in verses 19 to 25 that since we have confidence to enter the holy place of the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us up for us through the curtain that is to his flesh. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let's draw near with confidence, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Because it's a privilege. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the great mediator, has uniquely provided us the privilege to be restored to the presence of God in worship, which has been our calling all along. That's what he came to accomplish for us. Our sin in Adam drove us from God's presence. But our confession of truth is to be that Christ's incarnate righteousness restores us to that presence. And we rejoice in that. Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, is the one who has made worship special. Thing. If you're looking for something special, YouTube, Instagram, the lake, wherever it might be, doesn't shake a stick to the privilege of being restored to the presence of God in worship. Doesn't shake a stick to the special privilege worship is 
that's been restored to us by Jesus Christ, by his mediation. We don't have to be afraid to come to God in worship. We can come in reverence, confidence, and joy. Jesus Christ is a special person who gives to us the special privilege of being restored to God's presence. And that's where we hear the gracious and assuring words pardon. Now, again, you know, we don't just say, speak a word of pardon, pardon, just because, well, that's what we've always done. It's easy to do things because that's what we've always done. There better be a reason behind it. Well, when we come into God's presence, we need to hear about mercy. We need to hear an assuring word of pardon. And that's what we get when we come to worship. We should, anyway. There we may hear his gracious word of support as well in the midst of our temptation to give us grace in time of need that equips us then so that we don't neglect to do good and to share what we have because such sacrifices are pleasing to God as well. So that's what we come to do too. We come in the privilege of worshiping God in week to week and hearing words pardon. But we also come so that we might be encouraged to do good to receive grace in time of need so that we can go out and serve the Lord in his presence every day of the week. The incarnation is a special event. And it brings a special person so we can know the special benefit of restoration to God. And there is that way, no event like the Incarnation. There's no person like God incarnate Jesus Christ. There's no more special benefit than to know that our sins are removed and that what's happened now is that we're restored to the worship and the service of God in the presence of God. To worship Him week to week and serve Him every day. Now you and I might think there's some pretty special things to experience in life. God allows us to enjoy His world, no doubt. But there isn't anything more special. Nothing. More special. And knowing God's forgiveness and its presence through the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And every single person is called to believe that it's true. When you're looking for something special, really special, Nothing and no one is more special than who Jesus Christ is and what he's accomplished for us.
Amen. Let's take a moment to respond in prayer, shall we? Father, we're praying that when we're tempted to, to think that there's a whole lot more other things that are more special than knowing our restored relationship with you and being in your presence and worship and service, pardon us for falling into that trap of thinking there might be something or someone or some event that is greater than that. And of course, that means we have to dwell again on how special the Incarnation was and what it led to and what it accomplished in time. And when we do, and we keep everything in perspective, we pray that you'll help us to do that so that we would see that there is really nothing more special for us than to worship in your presence and to find in that way mercy and your assurance of pardon and to serve you in your presence all the day and we seek your grace to be able to do that too every single day we are called to fight the good fight of faith. So may you help us to appreciate and to see how thrilling it really is for us to be able to worship and serve in your presence, thanks to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the great high priest, the Savior and King that he is. We accept our prayer for Jesus.